Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, do I dismiss the children, or do they just know to go? Okay. Okay. You can dismiss children. Uh, yeah. See ya. Um, thrilled to be with y'all. Happy Father's Day. Um, I am very, very nervous about this. Like. Um, but I'm thrilled at the same, those two are not mutually exclusive. They are living true in my heart and in my voice that you can probably hear. So anyway, it's just, I'm, I'm thankful, thankful for the, this church and the people that I know and those that I don't yet. I, I look forward to get to knowing all of you. And um, yeah, just really excited about what's ahead. This actually, for me to preach today was, was planned actually, I think last summer, um, because Larry knew this wedding was coming up and stuff like that. Um, and so um, it wasn't even kind of aligned with me coming in, uh, and being a part of this church. Uh, it was just kind of like something the Lord's kind of set up. So I'm really grateful for that, uh, to be here today. So happy Father's Day, and uh, yeah, I'm really grateful. So thank you uh, for having me. Um, all right, the teaching text for today is uh, from John 2, verses 1 through 11. It'll be on the screen. Um, but this is a interaction between Jesus and um, a wedding that he's at. But John writes this, he says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial uh, cleansing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet, and they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had become, that turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Uh, back when I was 17, I was pretty set against um, God, Jesus, the Bible, the church, anything like that. I was... Um, pretty much like, I don't want anything to do with that. Actually, uh, someone saw that I was going to be a lead pastor at a church, and they were friends of mine in high school, and they were just marveled at the fact that, like, I can't believe that you're a pastor uh, because of who you were back when you were in high school. And uh, so that was fun to think about for a little bit. But um, I was just against any of that stuff. Um, I just didn't want anything to do with God. I really felt like if I chose to follow him, and give my life to him and become a Christian, that my life would basically just be miserable, that I wouldn't enjoy any of uh, the fun things that you could have, and that my life would go from like, exciting to boring and miserable and things like that. Um, but then there was this one day when I, was, when I was 17, I had given my life basically to anything I could possibly give my life to, so drinking and relationships and uh, partying, whatever it was. And uh, one night I threw a party at my house when I was 17, all my friends were there and we got really drunk. Um, and then my parents showed up and caught us, and we got in tons of trouble. Um, and then the next morning, I wake up, and I'm hungover, and my parents force me to eat food because they're cruel. And, um, and then they ground me for six months, like you're grounded for half a year, and, uh, which was proper. Um, and then they made me go outside and do yard work. Um, and so I was in the, in the process of like doing the yard work outside and I was having this internal battle with Jesus and I was just going, I felt like, like, I it felt like God was pursuing, like running after me. I really felt like God was running after me and saying like, would you please just give me your life? 
Like, just give me everything that you got. Like, you're making terrible decisions. I'd like to make your decisions from here on out. I really did feel like he was just speaking to me and saying that. And it came to this point where I was having this internal dialogue between me and God uh, and just saying, like, I don't want to do that. Like, my life would just be miserable. Like, I, what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm going to give my life to those things. If I follow you, I just, I just think you'll make my life miserable. And um, it was just this thought that popped into my head. But like, he was like, but aren't you kind of miserable now? Like, you're grounded for six months. Things aren't going great. And uh, as much as I hated to admit that, I was like, that's exactly right. Like, I, I had given myself to everything, and everything I'd given my life to at that particular moment never actually doubled down and helped me in any way in, in particular. Like, everything that it promised, it always underdelivered on the, all of those things. And so I had this moment where I was sitting there, I was like, yes, I guess I am currently miserable right now. I haven't thought about that until this moment. And, uh, and then I just thought, well, okay, um, I'm grounded for six months. I'm basically going to be living like a monk anyways. I might as well just give God six months, and we'll see how it goes. And, uh, and so I did that. I prayed. I was like, I'm giving you six months to run my life. Um, and, uh, and six months now has turned into 17 years um, because in those six months, like I, I started going to church, and then I felt called into ministry, and then it led me to move to Memphis where I met this man named Larry who was going to mentor me, and then I met his daughter, and we got married, and now we have this kid uh, that we love, and this incredible thing, and like, it was like one step after another. Six months turned into a year, and a year into two, and then on and on until I'm seven, 17 years into following Jesus, and I'm like, man, I didn't my life has been anything but miserable. I, I gave my life to him, and it's been this amazing, amazing thing that I've been able to experience. And just to think about, like, that moment, because when, whenever I go home to Georgia and I drive by that, that space at my house, and I see where I made that decision leaning on the fence, it feels like it could have gone one of two ways, like super simple just to be like, no, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to do that. And, like, where I would have wound up on my own, I probably would have been a drunk I probably would have been on my second or third marriage, heading towards my next divorce. I probably would have just constantly um, been searching for something more to fill me, and likely I would have been reminiscing about the glory days of high school baseball, which nobody loves that guy. Um, and I, that would have been, that's like the peak. That's where I would have wound up, and yet what I'm experiencing now is far greater than anything that I could have ever done on my own. And when I, you know, Father's Day and I celebrate my son this morning, like I'm just grateful to be his dad and all the different things that are happening there. I'm like, I almost missed out. Like I, he, he wanted to bring me into this thing that was really wonderful. And I almost missed out on all of that just because I didn't believe that he would actually lead me into a good space. And it was a number of years ago where I kind of realized, it was like Jesus was, was calling me and commanding me to obey him. But it wasn't like, obey me or else, or, or like, you need to follow me because you're living badly and you need to do something better. That, all that stuff was true, but it, it wasn't like that. It was more like, I have this picture for you of this life for you in your, in, in your future that I have for you, and I'm just inviting you into it. Like, when I'm asking you to give your life to me, all I'm asking you to do is like, what I have for you is far greater than anything you could ever do on your own. It's the stuff that I'd love to lead you into, but I'm just inviting you. If you would give your life to me, I would just, you would allow me to lead you into this life that I have for you, and that's what I want for you. And so for me, it was one of those things where I realized like, oh, it's, it's not, I'm commanded you because I'm guilt tripping you. It's nothing like that. It's like, I have something for you and I'm just inviting you into it if you want it. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to force your hand or anything like that. You don't have to follow me if you don't want to. But I promise you, what I have for you is something that when you look back 17 years later, you'll be like, thank God I said yes to this thing. 
And I think consistently uh, among the scriptures and in all the different things that we read, when Jesus calls us to things, when he asks for our obedience, one of the ways that we can look at it is like, you need to do this and not this. We, we can see it as a guilt trip. We can see it some of those things. But I think realistically, what it is, when he calls us to be obedient, he is calling us like, I'm just, I'm just inviting you into something better than what you could do on your own. And so anytime he's like, I'm, I'm asking you to do this, I'm asking you to follow me, I'm asking you to experience some of these things, it is a call to, I would just, I'm just welcoming you and extending the invitation to you to experience a life that I actually have for you. And I think you see that in this text here. These servants are, you know, just there at the wedding and all these different things. Um, and Jesus' mom is kind of funny. It's like, do whatever he says. And I just love how random it is. Like, do whatever he says. Like, honestly, it's been weird for 30 years. I don't know. It started weird. It's weird now. Like, I don't know what he's going to say. He could say anything. And yet there's this space where, like, they just do whatever he says. And in the midst of that, they're invited in to experience his power breaking out among them. He's, they're invited to experience a closeness with them. And then they're a part of this thing of displaying God's glory in the world. And so what I want to do today is I just want to look at their storyline here and the ways that Jesus just gives them some really simple, random things to do that ultimately leads to them being invited into a life that he has for them. And so I just want to look at uh, three real fast. The first is when Jesus calls us to um, do something, it's an invitation to experience his power in our lives. And so you see this here. The, the mother of Jesus says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And again, I love how random that is. But he says, fill the water jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And then they did so. And I like how simple it is. Like, do this and then do this. And they just do it. They're not, doing, they're not going above and beyond. They're not doing anything like that. They're just, here's what I want you to do. And then in the midst of all of that, they experienced the power of God breaking into their story and breaking out in their lives. And it wasn't because they did something powerful it's not because they were special. They didn't experience God's power in their lives because of anything like that. They, just, they experienced God's power breaking into their lives and that water being turned into wine, not because they are powerful, but because they just did what he said and the power of God began to break out among them. And I think for us, this is available to us. It's not, hey, I need you to turn water to wine. It's just, I just need you to be obedient and you will see these things actually taking shape in your life already. And what's difficult for us when, when God commands us to do something, for, for many of us and for me, is like some of the things that we want to see happen in our lives, it's like, okay, I want you to be obedient in this way. We just wonder, like, okay, I could do that, but what would that produce in my life? Like, it seems so powerless. These things that you're asking me to do just seems like there's just nothing in there that seems powerful at all. Like, what could this possibly do? And I think for them, they had to be wondering probably the same question and going like, what is this going to do? Like, we have a real problem. There's no wine, and we don't need more. We don't have a water problem. We have a wine problem. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would we do this? This doesn't seem to have any power in it. And yet, even though they don't know exactly what's going to happen and all those different things, like what they ultimately end up experiencing is God's power breaking into their lives. And it's just a simple, simple obedience that they step into. And then they're a part of this thing and see this thing take shape. And it's like, this is amazing. Like, we didn't do anything. We just did what he told us to do, and we see this stuff breaking out among us. And I think for us, this is what God is calling us into, simple, random obedience. It's like, just trust me. The thing itself might not be powerful, but the power exists because it's in my word. And I think we see this all throughout the scriptures, how God has operated consistently, just asking people to do really simple things, and then allowing God's power to break in among them just from being obedient to these small things. So, for instance, I got a couple on the screen here. So, Abraham... Abraham's was like, hey, here's the simple thing. Keep trying to have children. Like, that's what I want you to do. Like, you're about to experience a miracle, a child being born, and you're 99. And uh, 
I need you to keep trying to have children. And it's, an, it's important to recognize that like Isaac, Abraham's son, is not like Jesus, immaculate conception. And so the, the, the command of God to Abraham is keep doing that thing which leads to babies being born. Like, keep doing that. And it's like this amazing, like, for, for, you have to imagine the conversation between Abraham and Sarah. Like, look, lady, you're 99. I don't want to do this either. <laughs> but, but we, but we got to be obedient. Like, we got to do, it's like every man's dream. Happy Father's Day. Like, we got to, like, it's the Lord. He said it. And Sarah, anyways, we can, I got to move on. Um, but that was, I mean, it was like, keep, Keep trying to have children. That's how the power of God's going to break into your life. You're going to have a miracle baby when you're 99. Moses, go speak to Pharaoh. Like, how do I get the plagues? How do we take over a nation? How do we destroy a nation? Do you need me to do anything? It's like, I just need you to speak, which for Moses was actually challenging. He's like, I just need you to say words. Just tell him what's coming, and then what you say will ultimately come. Because that's from me. That's stuff I'm doing. I'll provide the power. You just provide the words to Pharaoh. And it's like, well, now we're stuck at the Red Sea. How do I split the Red Sea? It's like, can you do this, Moses? Can you lift your hands in the air with a stick in one hand? Like, do this. That'll do it. And he's probably like, what is this going to, and then it happens. He's like, oh, that did pretty good. That was really strong. I would have been this space where it's like, I I just, this is all it took. And it's like this really simple thing. And it's not Moses' power. It's God's power breaking out among him. The undrinkable waters at Marah. And it's like, how do, we, how do we change this water from undrinkable to feed these 600,000 or however many Israelites we have? It's like, oh, you see that stick? You just grab that stick and you throw it in the water. And like a child could have run over there and be like, this one right here? Okay. And then done it. Like, and that, that, that's it. it. And it changes the entire thing from something that's undrinkable to drinkable. And it's like, how? Like, what, what was so powerful about the stick? And it's like, there was no power in the stick. It was just, this is what he's called you to do, this simple thing that children do. Just grab the stick and throw it. My kid throws sticks in water all the time. Never turned it from, you know, bitter to, to sweet, but still, like, that, that's how simple it is. Joshua, walk around the city walls, uh, and that's how you're going to take over Jericho. That's how the walls are going to fall. So walk around on day one, walk around once, two, three, four, five, six, walk around one time, and then on the seventh day, let's throw in seven times around. And that's how the walls are going to fall. All you have to do is walk. Can you walk? Just tell them to walk, and then that's, that's what you'll do. And you have to imagine the other, you know, the people in the army just going like, hey, I know that Moses is dead, but was Joshua the best choice? Because this guy's kind of a lunatic. He's just telling us to walk, and he seems like a commander, but his, his battle cry is, let's just walk a bit. And yet, sixth time around, and then all of a sudden, the seventh time around, and they experienced the walls crumbling down. And they had to imagine on the sixth time around, nothing's changing, nothing's happening. But then on that seventh time, the walls fall down. It's like, oh, we were just obedient to this thing. Jonah, oh, excuse me, Elijah and Naaman the leper. Naaman comes to Elijah and is like, I want to be healed. And his servant goes and it's like, okay, great. Just go take a swim in the, in the water. And he gets mad. Like Naaman's like, I, that's dumb. I don't know why this would be the thing that, like, how is this going to heal me? I've, I've taken swims before. This isn't going to do anything. And yet there's this space where it's like his servant comes to him and says, look, if, if Elijah had asked you to climb a mountain or do something incredible, you would be like, great, I'll do that hard thing. But he's asked you to do this easy thing. Just do the easy thing and see what happens. And he takes a dip in the water, and then all of a sudden he comes out and he's healed. It's a small thing that's happening. Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. He's like, I don't want to go preach to Nineveh. But he goes and he preaches probably the shortest sermon and maybe the worst sermon ever, which short sermons and good sermons can go together. But he preaches like really short stuff, and he's kind of a racist and doesn't want to go. And so he winds up in this space with shortest sermon, worst sermon of all time, and doesn't want to go because he's a racist. And yet he does it, and the whole nation is cut to the heart and turns to the Lord. And it's like this really, I'm just going to be obedient, and it took a bit, but I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to see these things happen. 
10 lepers in Jesus' day, how are we healed? Like, take a walk, go show yourself to the priest. And as they walked along, they experienced healing breaking out among them. Disciples feed the 5,000. How do we do that? It's like, can you do this? Can you basket and just this, do this a couple of times and then we'll be good? And you have to imagine on the 30th, they were probably like, we're going to run out here in a second. But then 5,000 people later, they're like, wow, I, we, this was a, I mean, I don't know how this happened. But all they did was just pass it out among them. James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other so you may be healed. How do you receive freedom from your sin? How do you kill sin in your life? Talk about it. Just confess it to death. And just say it over and over and over again. Like this is consistently throughout the scriptures. God is never calling people to like, hey, something big needs to happen and I need you to be the person to do the big, giant, miraculous thing. It's never that. It's like I have these small things that I want you to do, but I want you to do them in obedience to me and then you'll see the power actually breaking out. The 3,000 that come to faith and it's like, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And it's like, I need you to repent Say, turn away from your sin and then, and then believe in Jesus. Like a whole faith is built on this simple thing that children can do, that old people can do, that the thief on the cross can do right before he dies. Like just repent and believe. And then we're transferred from this dead in our sins to alive in Christ. Simple stuff that ultimately leads to power breaking out among us. And I think for us, the testimony of the scriptures is that this is the way it works. God has seemed to package his amazing power into really small things that children can do, that old people can do, that wherever you're at along the spectrum, his power is packaged into these small things. It's like, just do these small things and you will see the power of God breaking out among you. Not because you conjured it, not because you earned it, but because I said, if you would do this, then you would see these things actually taking shape in your life. And this is the call to us to see some of these things happening among us. Like, if you want to see God's power breaking your life, you don't have to do something amazing. You just, it's just small, simple obedience that ultimately leads to those things happening. That's what happens for the servants. And so the first thing for you, like when, when Jesus says, like, I want you to be obedient, we can see it as like, you need to be obedient. You need to stop doing this. And you need, it's like, it's not that. It's like, I'm inviting, I have, I have things that you're longing for that you can't in your own power do. I'm inviting you to experience those things happening in your life just through small, simple, obedient things. And so I'm calling you to, in, I'm inviting you into this space where you can experience my power among you by doing simple things. So that's the first one. The second one is, when God calls us to do whatever he asks, of, uh, asks us to do, he's inviting us to experience a closeness with him. The space with him where like, we're actually really tight and we're really close. And we see this, kind of this passage in verse 9 that you could kind of skip over, but it says, The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And I love that the servants in Jesus, they just shared this secret. Like nobody else knew exactly what happened except the servants, like they understood what, what just took place. And I just imagine them taking the water to the guy and watching him drink it, and then he drinks it, and he likes it, and he looks at, they look at Jesus like, he likes the wine, that's really good. And Jesus winks at him or something. Like, I, I, like it's just a secret thing that they share back and forth that nobody else is privy to. And it's this really sweet closeness that these people who don't even get a name, they are called servants because they are servants, and yet they have this space with Jesus that's like, me and you are, are tighter now than anybody else in this whole celebration. We're the closest because we share a secret together. One of the Psalms says the Lord confides. He tells his secrets to those who fear him. Like He wants to do that. He wants to be close to, to people, close enough to where he can whisper and the person hears. That's how close he wants to be, and that's what he has with them. And when they do this, they ultimately share in that closeness. This is why Jesus says in John 15, 10, he says, if you obey my commands, if you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you obey, then you abide in my love. And people can read that and think that like, oh, Jesus is saying, if I, if I obey, then he will love me. But that's not what he's saying. 
Like we read it wrong if we read it that way. Like obey me and then I'll love you. But it's not that. It's like if you, if you want to be close to me, I'm, I'm telling you how to get there. And the way to do that is ultimately to experience doing these small things so that we draw closer together and we experience some of those things closer together. This is how we draw close. And I think one of the most effective lies, I know I dealt with this and I think people consistently deal with this. One of the most effective lies that the enemy has placed into the minds and the hearts of believers is this idea that God is always constantly halfway mad at us. Like he's probably, he's like a, a coach or a father who's never all the way pleased or a parent or something like, you do something good and he's like, yeah, but you could have done better. And like constantly pointing out flaws and stuff like that. But that's not who he is. That's not how he displays himself in the scriptures. And that's not the testimony of what he's saying here. He wants to, he, he delights in us and desires to be close to us. That's who he actually is. And this is why he gives us commands not to see, let's see, let's see if they screw up. Let's see if they, like, it's not that. It's like, I want to be really close with you. And the way to experience that is to walk in obedience to me so that we share this closeness together. His commands are not to shackle us, but to show us the way to actually experience closeness with him. He wants us not only to experience his power, but to really be close. And I think the scriptures testify to this. The, the, the psalmist in Psalm 16 says, in your presence, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, I just want you to experience my presence so that the joy that you're longing for and the pleasure you're seeking in other things, you would actually find that stuff and you wouldn't be searching for it in harmful things and stuff like that. Like, I actually want you to find those things in me. And so consistently what he's after, he's like, yes, I do want you to be obedient. And it's not because, or else you're going to burn. Like, it's not that. It's like, so that you and I can share this thing together that I've longed for. All of the Bible basically tells the story of God wanting to be with us. Genesis, he creates, and he doesn't have to. He creates people to dwell with him. We screw that up. Then the tabernacle shows up in Moses' day so that God can dwell among his people. And then they screw that up. Then they have the, the, the temple there that Solomon built so that God can once again dwell among his people. We mess that up. Then we get to Jesus, and it's like, now God, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we kill that man. Um, and then, you know, he rises from the dead. And then the, t- the temple curtain is torn, and then the Holy Spirit is given. So it's not only God with us and Jesus, but now it's God within. It's God within us. And so you walk through the entire scriptures, and you get to the space where it's like all he's wanted to do from beginning to end is just to spend time with his people. And then you get to the end of Revelation when everything's finally pieced back together. And the cry of the, cele- the celebratory cry is, look, God dwells with his people. Like that's the first thing that they say when the new heavens and the new earth come, come down. God, he finally, finally dwells with his people. The first thing that he does is he, he says that he wipes away every tear. He's finally close enough to take away all the pain, to take away all the suffering to remove all of those things that, just, that we've hated for our entire lives and the longings we've been able to try and fill but never able to actually fill. Like he's finally able to be the one that actually meets all of those needs. And the cry from the throne, it says there's a cry that from the throne room is I finally get to dwell with my people. And that's what he wants. And so Jesus has this space where he's going, yes, I want you to do these things so that you experience my power, but so that you can actually experience your, my presence with you. I want us to be tight. I want us to be close. I don't want you living with some lie, making you believe that like, I'm halfway mad at you all the time. That's, that would keep us apart. That keeps, you at, that keeps God at arm's, arm's length, not somebody that you actually want to draw close to. And so consistently, that's what he's offering to us. Uh, Richard Foster, um, author of a number of books on spiritual discipline, but um, he describes why God commands us to pray by telling a story um, about uh, another father and his son. And, and I, I just love this. It's, it's rather long, but I want to read it to us. He says, One day a friend of mine was walking through a mall with his two-year-old son, and the child was fussing. 
The father tried everything to quiet his son, but nothing helped. The child simply would not obey. Then, under some special inspiration, the father scooped up his son and holding him close to his chest, began singing an impromptu love song. None of the words rhymed. He sang off key. And yet, as best he could, this father began sharing his heart. I love you, he sang. I'm so glad you're my boy. You make me happy, and I like the way you laugh. On they went, from one store to the next. Quietly, the father continued singing, making up the words as he went. And the child relaxed and became still, listening to the strange and wonderful song. And finally, they finished shopping. And as the father lifted his son into the car seat, the child lifted his head and said, Sing it to me again, Daddy. Sing it to me again. And he says, Prayer is like that. In prayer, we allow ourselves to be gathered up into the arms of the Father and let him sing his love song over us. I love that vision of prayer. And I feel like, man, when we, among all the spiritual disciplines that exist, prayer is one of those things like, yeah, man, I, I gotta praise more. I, gotta, I, I should be praying more. Praying a little bit, I should pray a little bit more. The city's in some trouble. People in my life are hurting, I should pray more. And, like, and, and so the driving force is guilt. And it's like, it, it's not... It's not this, like prayer is being gathered into the arms of a father and receiving the love and affection that we've been longing for from birth till now. Like that's what this space is. And so it's not like, yeah, get in there and do the prayer thing. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you, get, to, you get to experience this tightness and this closeness with me that you're looking for and longing for and can't find anywhere else, but you can find it here. And I've just created the space for you to experience it. This is where it's at. And I think consistently, when he calls us to pray, when he calls us to sing and worship, when he calls us to hear God's word preached, or to read our Bibles, or anything like that, it's like, I just want to be close to you. I want us to be close. And you need that and long for it. You search for it in other things, but you can find what you're looking for in me. Jesus wants this with us. All right, last thing. When Jesus calls us to do whatever he asks of us, he's inviting us to partner with him in making his glory known in the earth. Verse 11 says this, what Jesus did in, uh, here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I love this, the fact that like, the servants get zero credit, which is right, they shouldn't get credit. This is Jesus' power, not theirs. But they forever are told in, in, in the line of this story of like the people who did part of the servant part in order to experience the glory and allow that to be seen by others. Like their story will be like, oh yeah, I was a part of helping Jesus display his glory and leading people to believe in him. Like this is forever gonna be a part of their stories. And I think one of the most significant ways that we see people actually being obedient and then helping display God's glory ultimately, that's something that we can do. In being obedient, we just get to be a part of God displaying his glory in the world. We make in our, our obedience God's invisible glory visible to other people. And I think one of the most significant ways that we see this is in the life of Jesus, or really in the death of Jesus. If y'all remember in the crucifixion, all the gospel writers write about it. Um, and all of them, basically there's, there's two thieves crucified, one to his left and one to his right. And they basically tell that story and they're mocking him. Um, but Luke captures um, the end of some of the story with um, one of the thieves that everybody else doesn't really talk about. And so at the, at the beginning, all the thieves are mocking. Two thieves are mocking Jesus. But at the end, one of the thieves changes his tune and he goes from mocking Jesus to actually wanting to be with Jesus. And we don't really know why other than the only thing that we can speculate is like, he just watched Jesus die and the glory of God was on display for him and it led him to go like, I was mocking before, but now I believe. And so if you look at like what he would have seen, the only explanation, like he, he would have watched Jesus forgive those who were killing him he would have watched Jesus care for his aging mother and been like, hey, John, this is your mother. 
mother, this is your son, that kind of thing, taking care of those. He's dying on the cross, and he's helping, making sure his mother has a life to live and people to care for her. And then he watches Jesus pray for those who persecute him. They, they, he watches Jesus quote scripture and, and probably repeat all of Psalm 22. Like he just watches this man die in the way that he dies and it ultimately puts God's glory on display. But I think the thing that probably helped the most or, or, or led the man to have a change of heart the most was the fact that Jesus forgave him for mocking. Like he's mocking, he's mocking, he's mocking. He forgives not only those who are killing him, but those who are mocking him and saying, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And somewhere in the midst of that, of like experiencing Jesus' death, it just changes this man. He's transformed, going from a mocker ultimately to a believer. And the only thing is, like, we just, Jesus just put God's glory. He's just doing the things he preached about, go and do these things. He's just doing those things in front of someone else, and it changes someone's heart, and it absolutely transforms them. And this is a really amazing thing that you see Jesus doing that. But this is our opportunity, and that's what we have every time that we're obedient. It's not go and do this stuff so that. It's like, but... I'm inviting you to display. You have people in your life that you long to see come to faith. Just follow them or follow me in front of them and just let, let, let them see it. And they might yell at you, they might mock at you, but just do it. They did that to Jesus and then all of a sudden the mocker turns into a believer and it radically changes his life. And I think that's our opportunity. Not to like, all right, I gotta go save the world. It's like, just follow me publicly and allow people to see it. And you will put the glory of God on display for others to see. <coughs> I was in... Uh, New York a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was there for a prayer conference, and I was talking to somebody that I was there. I was like, ah, I'm going to this church, going to this prayer conference, and the guy um, was like, oh, um, that's cool. Um, the church really has nothing for me, um, and Jesus, I don't really care anything about that, but that's cool that you do. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to hear that story. Like, why do you feel that way? And so <clears throat> he shared some of his story. And basically just like what he was met with from the church and, and from people who claimed to know Jesus was just basically a bunch of people telling him how wrong he was, how disappointed in him they were, um, how he should do better, how he should be ashamed. And basically they just used shame or fear of like hell to try and drive that man to heaven. And the issue with that is those shame and fear are very powerful driving forces. They're just not glory. There's no glory in, of Jesus and oh, I shamed you towards Jesus or I feared you, I scared you to Jesus. Like, there's no glory in that. And you will change somebody, but you won't transform them. And his experience was that way. He was changed. He turned into someone who hated God and hated the church. But he wasn't transformed into somebody that was like the beauty of Jesus. Like, it just it didn't happen for him. And I just, I started thinking about, I was thinking about this message and, and his story. I'm just going like, man, what if instead of somebody telling him and shouting at him to repent, if he just watched people in his life actually repent? Like they, just, they just repented of their sins, said they were sorry for their sin. He, he saw other people pray for them and forgive them and love them well and not condemn them. What if that was his experience but, instead of people going like, you, you're a sinner, you need to repent. Instead of that, just watching people do that thing and watching relationships form and grow and people not condemn those who confess their sin, then all of a sudden you wouldn't have to tell the man to repent. He, it would be beautiful enough that he'd want to do it for himself. Like it'd be like, oh, this is a really beautiful thing. You can, conf you can announce that you're wrong and not be canceled. You can announce that you're wrong and not be condemned. You can announce that you're wrong and people will pray for you and love you and, and actually pull you in to help you. Like it would have made this really, really thing that for him, like repent is a cuss word. And it would have made this really, really powerful thing that leads us to our faith. It would have made it beautiful for him. And maybe like if for his sin and stuff, if he had just watched his parents forgive one another consistently, and maybe they did, 
but forgive one another consistently in their, in their marriage. And then he just, he just watched forgiveness heal relationship and build relationship. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, I need to ask forgiveness as well. I need to do something. He just made this stuff beautiful. And I just started thinking about his story and just going like, what if people, instead of trying to scare him into hell, they just showed him like just, just little pieces of like, this is what heaven is going to be like. And so if you've just loved unconditionally, like, yes, you've screwed up a ton of times, but like, you are welcome in this place and I love you and I'm going to show you unconditional love because this is what heaven is going to be like. So instead of trying to fear, scare somebody out of hell into heaven, I was just like, that's beautiful. This is what heaven's going to be like, unconditional love. Here's, here's extravagant grace. Like, you're just, like, you don't deserve any of this, son, but I'm going to give you some grace. And you just experience a little piece of what heaven is like. We try and do this with uh, Teddy uh, a little bit. I mean, we're, you know, we'll screw him up in our own <laughs> special way. Um, but we want, to do th- we want to put God's glory on display for him so that when he's older, he doesn't wind up like this guy that I'm talking to at some bar in New York. I, so, the other, so we celebrate weird days uh, in our family like, that nobody else would celebrate. But it's just these, these spaces where we've seen God like, do something in our lives. And so if he's broken in with glory, we, we celebrate that day. And so January 13th, um, we did this. And it's called, we call it Deliverance Day. Um, and on Deliverance Day, we get delivery um, to our house, food, and anything. So DoorDash is awesome. Um, but the, the point of Deliverance Day was like, there was this time back in 2011 where there were some people in Rainey's in my life that were really trying to hurt us uh, and harm us, and uh, they just hated us and hated our family and all the rest of it. And, um, and so we, were, we found ourselves um, at a Panera parking lot in Chicago praying that God would just deliver us from these people that were on their way to Chicago to, to really try and create some damage in our lives. And um, we get a call like later that night after praying that, like, hey, they're not coming, and God just took that away and just absolutely wiped it away. And, like, they were on the way, turned around, and went back. And uh, we don't know why, other than we prayed and, and God did that. So we, we mark that day, and we just celebrate that day, and we call it Deliverance Day. We get delivery, and we get pizza or whatever, burgers, cookies, like, whatever, anything like that. And then we get our food, and it costs way too much money, but we don't care, and we sit and we eat. And we eat the food and glory in the deliverance day and the delivery food. And then we tell the story again. And we're like, you know why you're eating crumble cookies, son? Like, do you know why? You know why we got them delivered here for $800? (laughs) (laughs) The reason is because there was a day when people were trying to hurt your mom and me. And like God stepped in in power and he delivered us from that thing. And I just, it's true and it's real, but I want them to feel it. And I want them to taste it. And I want them to be like, God's glory tastes like crumble cookies. Like I want him to... I just want him to, because one day he's going to be somewhere in his life and he's going to be needing deliverance and people are going to be trying to hurt him. And I want him to be like, I'm calling on the God of my father and my mother. Like I remember that story and I tasted the goodness of those cookies. And I need to remember the fact that like there was a time when they thought it was over, but God stepped in and his glory is so beautiful. I'm like, "Ah, I know that's coming for him and it's going to be something that's really challenging and really hard. But if he's like, but I have heard stories of his goodness. His goodness actually has chased down my parents. And I want that to see that same thing. And I want my story and our story and our lives to be the space that like just elevates the glory of Jesus where people are like, bring whatever you have because nothing can conquer him. Death was the biggest thing. And if he can take over that, he, there's nothing else that's, that's left. And I, th- I think we have this opportunity in our obedience just to do simple things. Like, I mean, Lord, y'all, we've spent 100 bucks on delivery food. That's it. But like just trying to honor him. We're, we're called to celebrate his abundant goodness publicly. And so in doing that thing and just being obedient, we, we put the glory of God on this place of, for people to see. And I think in our obedience in small things, like what could forgiveness do 
in our, if we forget, forgave other people. Like, I don't know what it can do, but I know that it, it unleashes the power of God and it allows the glory of God to go on display and it binds us closer to this man who is nothing but pure forgiveness and has done that for us. Like, I don't know what that is for you, but there's these spaces where God is talking to us and saying, hey, I'm not yelling at you, condemning you, shouting at you or anything like that. I'm just inviting you in to what I have for you. And I would love for you to take my, trust me in this and just do this thing or stop doing this thing so that you would actually experience my power breaking into your life so that you experience closeness with me and so that the glory of God would be on display. And so my question, and the question is like, what is he asking you to do in your own heart, in your own life? If there's something that's like, he's been asking me to do this thing and I've been putting it off or I've been feeling guilty because I feel like he's guilty. He's not. He's just, it's an invitation that's always extended to you. You have an invitation to, to be obedient so that you experience the things, that, the life that he actually has for you. And so what is he asking you to do in your own life, in your own family, in your job, in your story? Is it to confess and to, to talk, have an honest conversation, to forgive somebody else, to let go of, I mean, I don't know, but whatever that thing is to you, I think it's personal to you, and it's something that he's inviting you into. And he's asking us, please trust me, I have life for you that's beyond compare. I will blow your mind if you'll just do the thing. And that's my story for sure. And if you don't know, if you're like, I don't know, nothing pops to mind, just open the Bible, find a space where you're out of step with the Spirit and just do that. And you're like, I don't think I'm doing that very well. Great, start. Just be obedient to that thing. And it's not so that he'll love you. It's not so that you'll go to heaven. It's so that you can experience heaven on earth here and now. So you can experience his life in actually breaking into yours. So that's what I want for you. That's what I want for this church. Um, I don't want us to be legalistic in any way, but I want us to be set free from the idea of legalism because he's not calling us, do this or else. It's never that. It's like, I invite you to experience what I have for you. It's yours for the taking. You don't have to. I'll never force you. But, I'm, they, but the invitation is always extended. Please, follow me in this, and you'll experience something beyond what you could experience on your own. So that's my encouragement to you. Let me pray. Father, um, I'm grateful for your word. Um, I'm grateful for uh, the, the Spirit, that, the gift of the Holy Spirit that you sent that uh, you said would guide us into all truth. And where there's truth and the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so we can be set free. And we can just experience life that we've been searching for and unable to find on our own. Uh, and so, Father, for the people here, for my life, my family, um, Lord, I pray that you would place things on our heart. Just show us these areas, not in a condemning way because that's not who you are but just in a way to, to show us these spaces where you're calling us to step forward into freedom and obedience to you so that we could experience your power, your presence, and then allow uh, others just to see how beautiful and glorious and faithful you are to us. So God, I pray that you would just speak to your people uh, through your word and uh, into their hearts. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to take communion. Uh, I don't know exactly how we do communion here, but there are people who do. And so um, I'm thrilled for that. And so I think people, people are going to come up. Um, but one of the ways that Jesus has invited us to experience his power, his presence, and his glory um, is through this. And it's like this really simple thing. It's like, I want you to, Jesus says, I want you to do this every time you're together. Do this in remembrance of me. And the thought can be like, but what, 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 what could this possibly do? Like, what is, what is actually available in something like this? Because it's too simple. Like, what can happen? But there are stories of people being wrecked, marriages being pieced back together because forgiveness actually breaks in when they, they remember. They're like, oh, it was his blood spilled. It was his body broken. 
And all this small, simple thing that anybody can do, that children can take and adults can take, that ultimately breaks into people's story. And so as you consider that Jesus, his blood was shed for your sins to be forgiven, that his body was broken so that you could be healed and by his wounds you are. Uh, my encouragement, you just take some time and just consider that. Consider that there was a punishment that we deserve that he was like, no, 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 no I'm a good father. I'm not going to let my kids take something that, that uh, they don't have to. I'm going to make sure I do that for them. Just consider his love for you uh, and then come and receive uh, the Lord's Supper.